do apologize. Uh, as we know, we're going through the, the Bible every, uh, for eight weeks, and every week I give a sermon based on kind of the last weeks of reading, and, and I apologize that, that Solomon didn't write a lot about Mother's Day. It's, uh, right up front, I was looking through, and, and all I could find were verses like, better to eat your piece of bread on the rooftop than with a nagging woman, and I didn't think that would really go over well for Mother's Day. So uh, we have a non-Mother's Day sermon. Um, do you know anybody who um, knows a little bit about everything? This is not connected to Mother's Day, I promise. Um, I mean... Not like, I am a, a king of useless information. Right? And I wield that like Excalibur when I say I'm a king of it. You know, people who, they just know a lot of useless information. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, we go uh, to Katie's parents' um, uh, house for Christmas or Thanksgiving. They, we kind of flip between our, our, my family and theirs, every other. And, and uh, it's funny because um, every time we go, Patrick, her brother, wants to play Trivial Pursuit all the time. There's only one reason he wants to play Trivial Pursuit, and that's because he can't beat his dad. Um, John knows a little bit about everything. And he just does. It's like if we get into acting, he knows who was this. And it's like, how do you know that? And he knows everything. I, all the time, it's like, man, I, I wish your dad was here. I'd ask him that. Because I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I, when we play with them, both, I mean, both of them are good. But Patrick's not quite John. Uh, I, I'm just lucky to get one little piece. And I, I, I'm satisfied with my one little piece of my little trivial pursuit pie. And, they're, they're, and they, they win all the time. Well, John wins all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who legitimately, you talk with them on virtually any subject, they have like something valuable, some type of input. Solomon is that kind of a guy. He's, I mean, Solomon knew something about everything. He's like the first Leonardo da Vinci, right? And you go back and you read, he didn't just have all this book of wise sayings, right? We have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He wrote some of the Psalms. He wrote, he wrote songs. He's a, he's a songwriter. And he gave speeches on uh, plants. So he knew a lot about botany or horticulture, whichever one. I'm not sure what the difference between the two is. But, but he knew it all. He knew about architecture. Just a guy, just a savant, just a guy who knows a lot about everything. And that makes Proverbs a little bit different because Proverbs is not written by theme. It's just kind of this shotgun of his knowledge on virtually everything. Last year we went through the book of Proverbs and just broke it down by topic. And that's kind of one of the problems is typically for these sermons I've been able to to find a theme and, and, and go through a text on a particular theme. Uh, but th- that's not how Solomon writes. So, so we're not going to be able to do that because he'll, he'll have a verse on, on wisdom and then he'll have uh, another verse will, will be on speech right after that and then he'll do this and then he'll go over. And, and that's just how Solomon is. So, so we're going to be kind of flipping through here uh, through the book of Proverbs a little bit on a, one theme. I want to start, however, in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, and verse 1 through 7. This is our longest text that we'll read. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, 
judgment and equity, to give prudence to the simple, the young man, the knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increased learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma. I don't know what that is, a riddle maybe. Uh, the words of the wise and their riddles. So, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is a different book. It's just full of, of his information, how to, how to teach people, to, to give pieces of information. And not just to give pieces of information, but he goes through here and says to, to, to help, help them understand. Hey, here's not just the information, but, but here's some things to understand how the information works. So, it's basically Solomon's two cents. Here's my two cents. On everything. You need this, you young men. You need this. You old men, you need this too. Right? He just, everybody needs a little bit of what Solomon, because he had something. It's not just useless information. This is not just trivial pursuit. This is stuff we all need to know. And there's a theme in here. A lot of these things we've gone through, and we're going to talk about a theme that he spent a lot of time on. It's something that's quite, quite important and not what you would expect on a Mother's Day. Sorry. We're going to look at Solomon's two cents on the topic of money. Because he had a lot of two cents about money. And we're going to look at four purposes of money today from Solomon. We're going to start very simple and we're going to get to the most important. All right? So we're going to start very simple, very basic, one of the basic concepts of what Money is four in chapter 13. And we're just going to kind of run through these. If we get done early, then so be it. Chapter 13. Uh, and there's two verses in here that kind of go good together, but they're not next to each other because that's how Solomon wrote. In verse 11 and then verse 25. He says, um, Wealth gained by dishonesty. Excuse me, am I right? Yep, I'm in the right place. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished. But he who gathers by labor will increase. And then down in verse 25, it says, The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked will be in want. I want you to understand, sometimes we, we don't realize that the Bible says this, but, but money is for your enjoyment. One of the purposes of money, and we don't say this enough, because, because we dwell on the most important things. But the Bible does again and again. And if we, we opened up to, to Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes, we would see this. That money is to improve life. That's one of the things it's for. A lot of times sermons begin and end with, with these feelings of guilt because people enjoy life. And people use what they have to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. Solomon again and again asserts that this is one of the things that money is for. It is to make your life better. However, in each of these things, we do need to, to look at the flip side and, and understand the right perspective and understand the right place for money. It is to be enjoyed, and there is no guilt in that. Chapter 21 Chapter 21, verse 17, places that concept into context. 
He says, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. He did not say he who enjoys it or he who has it. He says he who loves it. In other words, we can place it into a position in our lives and, and give it an importance that it shouldn't have. And when we do that, then it no longer holds the place that it's supposed to. It's no longer for enjoyment. The enjoyment becomes the ends. It becomes the reason for living. And we love it. We get attracted to it. It is easy to get addicted to enjoyment. I like that. But wealth is, in, an, in a sense, it's a lie. In verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 4 and 5, he says, Do not overwork to be rich. Don't work overtime. No, that's not what he said. Because of your own understanding, stop. Will you, not, will you set your eyes on that which isn't? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away like an eagle towards heaven. Wealth is there to enjoy, but its promise is elusive. Did something this week. As I was reading this and writing my sermon, and it's so easy to write things and, and say things up here. It's a pretty convenient position to be up here and say things and tell you all what you're supposed to do. And that's pretty easy. So I went on to Amazon, clicked my account. And I just started from January. $400 since January and I paid them $99 to be able to do that. <laughs> to sit there in the comfort of my own chair and I need that. I'm telling you if I didn't have free shipping I wouldn't have <laughs> nearly so much of that stuff that I thought was so important at the time. $400. It has wings. Something's got to be done about that. It has wings. So let's move on to something a little bit more important. Because enjoyment is good. But there are greater purposes to my money. We need a plan for the future. Yep, that's in there. Chapter 10. Verse 5, he says, He who gathers in the summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in the harvest is a son who causes shame. There's an idea of, of a plan for the future. Winter's coming. What are you doing? I'm waiting. That's, that's not a plan. Life is full of inconvenient times to do things. This is not convenient time. I'm rather busy. 
I need things now. I want my enjoyment now. The weather is nice. I'll do it tomorrow. Why well, do today what I can put off till tomorrow, right? This is planned for the future. Chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, very similar. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. He who troubles his own house. This covers a lot of ground. But providing for the future is an important thing. Uh, You know, one of the things that that gets downplayed a lot, again, in sermons, and I don't understand it, um, I guess I do. We talk about trusting God, and so, so sometimes I've heard sermons that, that almost sound like we're supposed to trust God, so we're not supposed to plan for the future. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I'm not supposed to say because I'm supposed to trust God. I, I don't think that's what he was driving at, but I've heard those sermons. I've actually heard those sermons. You trouble your own house. A plan for the future is required. We move on. I knew a kid. He was a kid. Now he's a man. Got married at about 18 or 19. And... Uh, his wife had just barely graduated from high school. And about six months later, they bought a house. That's, that's a plan for the future. I mean, that's, that's responsibility, except that he was not very responsible with his money. He's a good worker, good carpenter, really good carpenter. And as soon as he'd get a paycheck, he'd go to Home Depot. And he'd just buy tools. And I suppose he's at least got some equity. There's a lot of worse things he could have done with it. Uh, you know, you just kind of throwing it away or eating out all the time or whatever. But, but he's actually buying stuff that you could say, well, in the future, he's going to have something to make. But, I mean, he just, boom, his check was there, boom, and gone. And his wife, uh, for being as young as she was, was fairly mature. She says, he'll figure it out. We've got some kids, you know, later. This was something that, that happened for a period of years. So they had one, two kids down the road, still doing this. But daddy owned a grocery store and daddy would bail them out and uh, he would just go in, pick some food off the shelf and walk up because dad owns the grocery store. It's coming a time where daddy didn't own that grocery store and daddy retired. We better figure it out. She's like, he'll figure it out. He's apparently figured out. He still has his house, so I guess he figured it out. We don't always have someone to bail us out. Don't trouble your house. Enjoy life, but don't trouble the house. There is a a dark side to wealth. Chapter 13 
There's one who makes himself rich, verse 7, and he has nothing. There is one who makes himself poor and has great riches. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor doesn't hear rebuke. There's some people that all they have, and we talked about this, all they have to make their life better is riches. And it works for a certain time and certain occasions. I'm sure we've all heard the story of Hetty Green. Most everybody's heard the story. It's pretty famous. Hetty Green was a, a woman. She lived in New York City. Um, and uh, she owned one dress, black dress. Uh, she would only wash the hems because soap cost too much. So that was where it got dirty. So she would only wash that. She didn't want to spend too much. She ate oatmeal, which she didn't want to heat uh, on the oven because gas costs money. So she'd put it on a radiator to heat to lukewarm temperature. Her son, uh, when he was young, uh, was injured. And uh, she didn't really want to pay a doctor. Uh, she had like as minimal treatment as she could. Um, she told him that he would. Uh, she, she eventually had to pay the doctor, so she paid him. But she's, she was going to take him to a different doctor, which she, she didn't do. Uh, so when he was older, he had to have his leg amputated. That story repeats itself. I mean, there are so many details to Hetty Green's life about how poor she was. Except that when she died, Hetty Green was worth in 1916. She was worth $200 million, which made her the richest woman in the world. It would be worth about $4.5 billion today, today's money. And she ate cold oatmeal. Her uh, nickname was the Witch of Wall Street. Um, as a six-year-old girl, Hetty Green had read financial papers to her, newspapers to her father while he was busy doing this or that. So she grew up knowing the economy. And she worked Wall Street. She was a better stockbroker than any of the men in Wall Street. She outworked them all. She hustled them all. She made herself rich, and yet she was poor. And that's what Solomon's talking about. There's one who makes himself rich but has nothing there are those you see God's economic principles don't always work the way that we think there's one who makes himself poor and yet has great wealth there, there are those who don't have what you think they would have and yet they are surrounded by people they're surrounded by family, friends, people that they've invested their lives in and, and have a different type of wealth. So there are people who make themselves poor and yet have great wealth. And then kind of move that to our next important thing. It's important to enjoy life. God made life to be enjoyed. It's important to have a plan for the future, but it is more important. As we look to chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. 
Do not hold good, withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go, come back, I'll give you it tomorrow. When you have it right there with you. Generosity. Generosity is the, the next level of what we do with what we have. It is easy to think that I've done something extra, isn't it? This week we helping family promise. It's, it's easy to think, I've done something extra. I've got some extra credit. Because I helped out those who didn't have it. Read verse 27 again. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. I owe. I don't get extra credit. The bank doesn't give me extra credit for paying off my mortgage. It's like I've done something extra. I owe them. Generosity is using my money to whom it is owed. Different, that's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Now there's exceptions to that. And, and we would have to hunt through all of the Bible to put things in context. To those who can work, they should. The Bible has a lot of principles on that. But in general, generosity, as he's saying, is a requirement, not an extra credit. Chapter 11, verse 24, and uh, beginning. It's kind of, we've read a similar principle. It says, there's one, verse 24, he says, there's one who scatters and increases more. We talk about that weird way that economy, uh, these godly economic principles work. It says, there's one who scatters and yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. There's one who saves too much. And the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will be watered himself, and the people will curse him who withholds his grain, and blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. There is a difference between saving and hoarding, in other words. There's a point at which making my own life better is, is not really beneficial to me. So who receives the benefit? That's kind of the question. Chapter 19. Verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And he will pay back what he has given. That's a little bit easier, maybe, to look at and place into perspective what we're doing. I am not giving it's interesting that in these financial terms, he places it as a, as a, a lending type of an agreement. 
that God gives back. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to come back in dollars and cents. It might come back in a different way. But God always repays when he is lent to. God is trying to get the benefit. How in the world does... What does that mean that I'm lending to God? God doesn't need my money. Money... They think about it like energy. Right? We learned in physics that, that matter and energy cannot be created, destroyed, right? First law of thermodynamics, but they can change form. Right? They change form. And it might be heat or it might be sound or all these lights, all these different forms of energy can change. Money is, is, is like a kind of an energy, if you think about it. And God can take that, and he can manipulate it, and turn it into different things. What I mean by that is that money is a commodity, and, and giving it to God, giving it to people, informs that they need, can become an instrument to win hearts. God takes that paper and he transforms it. You lend it to him, he says, I'm going to give it back. It's going to come back a different way. It might come back in the form of new Christians. Or it might come back in the form of orphans who hear about Christ. And, and, and it's amazing how, how a point can get put into a jar right here. And, and it can miraculously become someone who's hearing about Christ on a different continent. It's amazing how God can do that. Lend it to God. We're getting pretty high on the, on the scale of importance. We started with just going out and enjoying a hamburger or fixing up my house. And we've gotten to some pretty important things. What in the world can be more important than lending to God? We're going to learn what can be more important than lending to God. Chapter 3. Verse 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The only thing that you can do greater than lending to God will be giving to God. That's the only greater thing. Lending to God is done in the form of, of by proxy, I, I give to somebody and, and God can manipulate that and talk about that. And, and using it to be generous to people, that's, that's lending to God. But, but giving it directly to Him, where there's no promise of getting it back. Maybe he might, as He says here, you, your, your barns will be filled with plenty. But there's no promise that. It's giving. 
is similar to generosity and it's used for the furtherance of the kingdom in some way, directly or indirectly. But there's no expectation of it coming back to me. That's not what it's there for. It's there simply to honor God. That's what it's there for. And I owe it to Him whether I benefit down the road or not. Honor with your first fruits of your increase. This is direct giving. That's the obvious reference. This is not a reference to just generous. That, these are two different categories. A lot of times we, we, we think, well, I was generous this week, so, so I don't have to give to God because I already gave to God over here. No, you lent to God over here. Now this is giving. This is, these are two different categories. It is disrespectful to accept good from God and to think I can hoard it. We establish a baseline for what is mine. This is mine. I've accepted it. It's easy for Ray to give me a check. I look at that number, that's mine. That would be very easy. It is easy. No, no, it's not. And then I feel, oh. Mother's Day. I won't ask for a show of hands who's going to get their mom flowers. But if I were, I would ask you, are you going to go in, if you haven't already, go into the flower shop and you're looking around and there's carnations, that's a traditional Mother's Day one, or maybe tulips, they're kind of in season, and uh, some roses, roses are always good roses. It's kind of expensive. Mother's Day, boy, they're jacking the prices up on Mother's Day. Kind of look over, and there's this thing back in the corner where they kind of take those out there and say, How much are these over here? Oh, petals all sad looking, falling off, <coughs> wilted. How much are these? What, 75% off? Well, that would be respectful, mom, wouldn't it? Respect. It's a thing of respect. If you're a visitor today, what I'm about to say is not to you. But I have an app. Forty four families. And I can, I, I'm, I have this curse that I'm good at math. And I can multiply that by 52. And I can tell you that our average, our median household income in this room is not $29,000. I can tell you that. 
It's about respect. God owns everything on this planet. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my money. It's never about, it's never been about what God needed. It's about respect. I know this is not a Mother's Day sermon. I apologize for that. But on a day when we are going to go out and think a lot about respecting people who have invested in us from the time we were little and who have devoted their lives to us, How we respond to that? How do we respond with what we have towards the one who fashioned me together in the womb? The one who breathed life into me and called me his child. Have I respected him with every aspect of who I am? Let's go to the